the invisible, immortal God. Jesus is the glory of God wrapped in flesh. God con carne. <laughs> Tony, could you translate that, please? <laughs> God with meat on it, really. So when we see the compassion of Jesus in the Gospels, we see the compassion of God. Next, I want us to see the sorrow of Jesus Christ and see what that shows us also about our God. Please turn with me to Isaiah 53. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. The first three verses. Let's look together. <clears throat> Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Our Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Again, I'm not a big fan of movies about Jesus because they all give us some actor giving his own interpretation of Jesus, and mostly he comes across rather robotic, void of human emotions. He just kind of walked around Palestine staring straight ahead, glassy-eyed, the kind of guy who would never get a joke. Of course, kind of ruins your jokes when you're omniscient, but... Uh, but I believe actually the opposite was true of Jesus. I believe he was full of emotions. He was the most sensitive feeling man who ever lived because he had no sin or guilt to dull his feelings. You and I are sinful. And sin makes us insensitive and unfeeling to others because it turns us inward, right? It makes us self-centered. We're consumed with ourselves and our own feelings. I think back to those years that I was working with youth, uh, with Chris and others, and teens would often come up, and they would be so distraught. Oh, Pastor Doug, the kids, other kids are saying mean things about me, and I'm so worried about what they think about me. And I said, don't worry. They're only thinking about themselves. They really don't care about you, <laughs> right? And we're all kind of like that. We're all kind of like that. We tend to shut out the pain and the sadness of others. If you think about it, if anything makes us dazed and robotic, it's sin. And Jesus had no sin. He was free from all of that. He was and he is the most loving man who ever lived. He was deeply concerned about the feelings of others, and he felt what others felt like no other man who has ever lived. So what was he like when he walked on this earth? What was his personality like? Have you ever thought about that? 
What was his personality? Some theologians say that Jesus didn't have a unique personality. It was just kind of generic, common to the whole human race, plain vanilla personality. I don't believe that. I believe he had a specific human personality that was derived genetically from Mary. He had a real human mother, right? But it was perfectly controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what was he like? Was Jesus a life of the party kind of guy? Or was he solemn and serious? Uh, He'd rather be off in a corner reading a scroll than spending time with people. Was he basically happy? Or was he mostly sad? This morning we saw Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, heartbroken. He was a man of sorrows. He had deep joy, we know that, but we're never told that he laughed. We're never even told that he smiled, although I'm sure he did both. But basically, I believe Jesus was a very serious man, a very intense man. He was anything but superficial or silly. Jesus didn't come to this earth to party. He didn't move to our neighborhood because he liked the restaurant. He came on a very, very specific mission to suffer and die so that his sheep could have eternal and abundant life. Jesus came here to this planet on a rescue mission because sin would send every last person on the planet to hell if he didn't. And the path to the cross was filled with sadness. Surely he has borne our griefs, Isaiah says, and carried our sorrows, yours and mine. I I, I believe that has a double meaning. Now listen. As a man, Jesus felt the same kinds of pain and sorrow and sadness that you and I feel. All the same categories, but he also felt our griefs and sorrows. Do you see what I mean? He felt his own, and he felt ours. Are you familiar with the term empath? Empath. Have you heard that term, that label? An empath is a person who is hypersensitive to the emotions of others. I have members of my family who are empaths. How are you doing? You seem fine. Are you okay? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm all right. (laughs) I'm okay. I'm not feeling anything. (laughs) I feel so badly for you. They even claim to feel what animals are feeling. Elliot's just not himself. What's wrong? Elliot is our cat, by the way. I'm not an empath, so I don't care what Elliot's feeling. But an empath feels even more than what people feel themselves. When the other person is long over their sadness, the empath is still hurting for that person. Do you know people like that? It's a real burden to carry. I feel for empaths, but I'm over it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I was, I was talking with a member of my family who's an empath. I said, do you think Jesus was an empath? They said, absolutely. I think that's true. He not only felt the same kinds of pain that we feel, he felt the pain of others. And that was a double burden that our Lord Jesus carried. When we have some natural disaster, an earthquake or a flood, the governor or the president will get into a helicopter, right, and do a flyover to lay eyes on the death and destruction that his people or her people are experiencing. Mostly it's a photo op, but imagine what God the Son must have felt when he climbed into our skin and saw and felt firsthand as a real man what sin had done to the human race, which was created to bear and reflect his image. He felt his own pain, and he felt ours. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I want to do what we did in the last session and look at what the scriptures tell us about the sorrow of Jesus and what that tells us about God. And I want to break it down like this. Jesus cried, Jesus sighed, and Jesus died. Let's look at the first point. Jesus cried. We saw Jesus at graveside of his friend Lazarus. He wept there. He sobbed. He felt in his own heart the pain that his friends felt. And Jesus must have wept often. But something else brought Jesus to tears, and that was unbelief. Turn to Luke 19. Luke 19. Beginning in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, this is Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, surrounded by this crowd that had come with him all the way from Galilee. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the king. But while they're rejoicing, Jesus is sobbing. The word here means loud wailing. It was the stubborn unbelief of his Jewish brothers and sisters that broke Jesus' heart, and he knew what was going to happen to them as a result. The horror of what happened in 70 A.D. when 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered, another 97,000 were captured and deported. When the conquering general, Titus Vespasian, returned to Rome from this slaughter, he refused to accept 
the victory wreath, he said, there's no merit in vanquishing a people who had been forsaken by their own God. And this was a righteous judgment upon a people who had rejected their Messiah, but still Jesus was weeping. Weeping over these people and what awaited them. He was heartbroken. Brothers and sisters, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and neither should we, right? Right? It should break our hearts that so many people will go into a Christless eternity, even when some of them oppose our ministries, hinder the gospel. We need to always remember that unbelievers are not the enemies, they are POWs, right? The only difference between us and them is we've been set free by the mercy of God. But if we do not pity them, we will not pray for them. And we would pray that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. How did Paul see unbelievers? They weren't the enemy. They were captives. Now, I'm a Calvinist. I believe God chooses whom he will save, but I also believe God is not willing, desirous, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How about you? We see Jesus' sorrow when he cried. We see Jesus' sorrow when he sighed. Turn to Mark chapter 7. We were there first session. Mark chapter 7. Beginning in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. This man probably was able to speak when he was younger, or probably became deaf when he was young, because he, he still retained some speech, but after years of deafness, he was almost unintelligible. So some people brought this sad man to Jesus, and he healed him. But why did, why did Jesus look up to heaven with a deep sigh? The word translated sigh is a very emotional word. It's usually translated to groan, to groan, to moan. It's the word used of the Holy Spirit groaning as he intercedes for us in prayer in Romans 8.26. We find it in the Septuagint of the Old Testament in Lamentations, in Exodus, of the Israelites groaning in captivity in Egypt. Why was Jesus groaning here? It's the same re reason that creation groans, the same reason you and I groan, we long to be set free from living under the curse of Adam's sin. Listen, Romans 8, 22 and 23. Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, sighing together 
in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You all know what it means to groan, don't you? We groan because of physical pain. We groan because of emotional pain, the pain of working, the frustration of our shortcomings and weaknesses. It's living on this planet with evil, Christ-hating people. It's Alzheimer's and arthritis. It's going from pimples to wrinkles with hardly a good day in between. I looked in the mirror one day and saw a pimple and a wrinkle. I thought, what do you do? What do you do? Living in bodies that are constantly tempted with sin. Paul writes in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am. Wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Don't you literally groan sometimes? I do when I get out of bed just about every morning. Tell you that. Oh Lord, how long? The older you get, the more you groan for the glory to come. I often read this passage at the memorial services of Christians, 2 Corinthians 5 2. For in this tent, and Paul means in this human fleshly mortal body, we groan, we sigh, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We groan for our new glorified bodies. We groan for heaven. Imagine how much more then our Lord Jesus groaned and sighed when he saw and felt all around him the ravages of sin. But let's dip into a little theology here. Jesus is the second Adam. He obeyed God where the first Adam disobeyed God. The second Adam will bring about the reversal of the curse brought on by the first Adam's sin and a new heaven and earth. Amen? We sing it at Christmas time. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. But at his first coming, Jesus had to live with the curse under the curse, just like the rest of us. I wouldn't doubt it if Jesus got bitten by a mosquito, stuck by a thorn. Wow, what irony is that? With his own human eyes, he saw how sin had trashed his father's creation and crippled and crushed and bruised and broke people created to bear his father's image. No wonder he groaned. It was heartbreaking. You and I are used to it, right? It's all we know. But Jesus knew the paradise that was lost and the paradise that would one day be restored. That's why he sighed. When this poor man was brought to him, he looked up to heaven and groaned. How long, my father? How long? Brothers and sisters, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses you can know that when you sigh and you groan because of the ravages of sin, tsunamis, cancer, death, our Lord Jesus groaned too. He cried, he sighed, and he died. 
Last I checked, the mortality rate for hu human beings was right around 100%. Right? We're all going to die. But that was literally the reason that Jesus was born, right? He was like a lamb that was born and raised to be slaughtered as a sacrifice. He knew exactly how it would happen, where it would happen, and he must have thought about it constantly. I believe the cross cast a shadow across Jesus' entire life. I think he was obsessed with it. The day is coming when I will be crucified and experience separation from my father. He knew it. It even affected his family. Think about Mary's pain. In Luke 2, 34 and 35, we read this. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Do you remember this? Simeon's holding that little baby now that I've held him in my arms. Now... My soul can depart in peace. But then he turns to Mary and he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. The Holy Spirit was saying, This son of yours is going to be hated and rejected by many and your own pain over him will be like a sword in your heart. Think about the pain that Mary must have felt when she saw the way people reacted to her son, her firstborn son. They loved him or they hated him. We, we see her in the gospel. She's wringing her hands, trying to get him to come home because she thinks he's lost his mind. And then we see her still not completely comprehending who he is or what's happening, following him all the way to the cross, Imagine how Mary suffered. And my point here isn't Mary's sadness, but my point here is Jesus' sadness in watching what his mother went through. What she would have to endure because of what God had called him to do. It must have brought him to tears to look at his sweet mother and know what was going to come upon her. I think the cross was always on Jesus' mind, and situations, I believe, triggered his thoughts to Calvary. This, this happened in the very center of John's gospel. John chapter 12 is like a hinge in John's gospel. And some have called this Jesus' many Gethsemane. In John 12, 20 to 28, you can turn there if you'd like, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. We read this, now among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now stop here. <laughs> the nation of Israel has by and large rejected its Messiah, and now Gentiles are coming to worship him. Does that bring back recollections of Matthew chapter 2, his own people don't recognize the Messiah, but these pagan magi have come to bring gifts to the little baby. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, it's finally time to die. When the nations come, 
to worship the Messiah of the Jews who are rejecting him. It's time. It's time. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, or whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is thinking about the cross, and he's deeply disturbed. This word troubled occurs three times describing Jesus, every time in relation to his death. We saw it in John 11 where Jesus was so disturbed about Lazarus' death. It wasn't so much dying that disturbed Jesus as death itself. Death was the penalty for sin. Sin was behind death, and Satan was behind sin. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and yet he had to submit to this ultimate humiliation of physical death. But he says, what am I going to say? Father, save me from this? This is what I came for. This is my purpose. This is what I was born for. Father, glorify your name. What he's saying is, not my will, but your will be done, right? But what a struggle. What a struggle. And this struggle came to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14. Turn there with me. Mark 14. I want you to see this. Mark 14 and verse 27. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Really, Peter? Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter was called an influencer, right? <laughs> and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus is facing the horrific experience of torture, crucifixion, and drinking the cup of his father's wrath on sin. And his closest friends will turn from him. Can you imagine what that would be like at your darkest hour to have your friends abandon you, leave you to suffer alone, and adding insult to injury, Peter's boasting that he would never, ever leave Jesus that's why he took these three with him to the garden to pray. They had no comprehension of what was about to happen. They were in great spiritual danger themselves because of their overconfidence. They needed to pray so they wouldn't give in to temptation. Instead, they took a nap. And they did give in to temptation, didn't they? 
Jesus prayed, and he didn't. Then in verse 33, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Greatly distressed is dread, horror, shock. Lexicon says, the Greek word is used of those whose minds are horror struck by the sight or thought of something great or atrocious, not merely because it injects fear, but because the mind scarcely can take in its magnitude. And troubled has the idea of loathing, discontent. It describes the confused, restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical discouragement or mental distress or grief. It's like picture a person just pacing back and forth, talking to himself. That's Jesus in the garden. He said his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. He's saying, the sorrow enough is enough to kill me. He felt he was drowning in his grief. He was going under. It was enough to kill him, and brothers and sisters, it did. It, it did. You remember when the executioner came to Jesus on the cross? He was surprised to find that Jesus was already dead. So soon? It seemed too quick. That's because he died of the emotional stress. He really died of a broken heart. Luke twenty two forty three tells us that when Jesus was agonizing in the garden, Luke says an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And if that seems to lighten the darkness a bit, we have to remember that whatever the angel did to strengthen Jesus, it was only to prolong his life, to endure more suffering. In Mark 14, 35 through 40, Mark writes, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Have you ever asked someone to pray for you for something important, then found out they never did? <laughs> as soon as you asked, they forgot about it. <laughs> Have you ever done that? How would you feel if your best friends wouldn't even stay awake to pray with you when you're so overcome with grief that it's almost killing you? That had to really hurt. But even here, do you notice Jesus is gracious? He cuts some slack. He says, I know the Spirit's willing. The flesh is weak, though. Well, Luke tells us how bad it was in Luke 22, 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You're familiar with this. That's a medical condition known as hematidrosis. It's, it happens when the capillaries under the skin rupture. They mix with the sweat. It's been documented in people who are facing execution or going into battle, and it leaves people extremely weak and dehydrated. Remember, Jesus couldn't even finish carrying his cross to Calvary. He cried out he was thirsty from the cross. 
So Dr. Luke wants us to know this indescribable emotional distress that Jesus experienced as he faced the cross. Mark 14, 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So after all of this, one of his own men will betray him. One already denied him. Now one gives him the kiss on the cheek of betrayal. I think there's a song that says that's not what kisses are for. But the peak of his sorrow was those three hours on the cross when everything went dark. He hung on the cross alone, bearing his father's wrath on the sins of his people, and he cried out that first verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Calvin wrote in his Institute, certainly it's not possible to imagine a more terrible abyss than to feel yourself forsaken and abandoned by God, and when you call upon him not to be heard as though he had conspired for your destruction. And yet, in a sense, that was true, because Isaiah says the father was pleased to crush his son, putting him to grief. Jesus knew that he was receiving the wrath of God that our sins deserve, and at that moment, his father couldn't offer his son any relief no relief, no comfort. He didn't spare his own son, Romans 8.32. He didn't spare Jesus from any of the punishment that our sins deserve. He unleashed it all on his son. He poured it all out on his son. He treated Jesus as you and I deserve to be treated. Every slap on his face, every lash on his back, he took so that we will never, ever have to experience it. Anything that the Father held back from his Son would have been waiting for you and me at the judgment day. But Isaiah meant it when he said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus was our substitute, and Jesus paid it all. And as Jesus was willingly, sacrificially giving up his life to save his people, think about this. He was being mercilessly mocked by the onlookers. What do they think about his crucifixion? Isaiah 53, 4 says, they esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. What did they think? That man is up there for his own sins. He must be. He's getting his karma. Wow. Remember what else they said? He saved others. He cannot save himself. Boy, was that true. If he had saved himself, he couldn't have saved others. Completely misjudged. Completely misunderstood. That's our Jesus. And this was the price to purchase our forgiveness from our lying, from our pride, from our idolatry, immoralities, selfishness. The price wasn't just Jesus' broken body. It was also his broken heart. So how did Jesus crying, sighing, and dying reveal the Father's glory to us? Well, it displays the glory of his love for sinners. The Father took his sinless Son gave him over, delivered him up, the scriptures say, to be tortured, suffer, and die. So the extent of Jesus' 
sufferings and sorrow is the measure of his Father's love. We sing it, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch's treasure. I want to dig a little deeper, though, right before we go to lunch. I want you to hang with me here. I hope you got some coffee during the break, okay? I want to show you that God's love in Christ's sufferings is more glorious than we can comprehend, and we need to take a deep dive into some theology here to understand this. Here's the point I want to make. In the incarnation, in the incarnation, God taking on human nature, human flesh, the impassable God suffered for us. Not impossible. Impassable God suffered for us. In other words, God who cannot suffer and is immune to suffering, accepted and experienced suffering through his son in the incarnation. He didn't have to, but he did for our sake. What? Love. Now let me explain this. Let me define impassibility. It's very possible that it's a word that you haven't heard before, you're unfamiliar with. But until the last hundred years or so, the church has always affirmed that God is impassible. It comes from the word for, from the Latin passio, which means to suffer, uh, or the passion. Maybe you've heard the, the term the passive obedience of Christ has nothing to do with Jesus being passive. It comes from the word passio, the suffering of Christ. That's what that's talking about. Okay, so the church has always believed that God is impassable, meaning that God, in his essence, God as spirit, is not subject to suffering, pain, or being thrown around by emotions the way we are. John Calvin said, God does not have blood. God cannot suffer. The Westminster Confession of Faith says God is without body, parts, or passions immutable. Now, I'll just tell you right now, hard to find that doctrine being spoken about or even believed nowadays. Now the big thing is to say God is just going through it all the time. He's a nervous wreck. He's an emotional wreck in heaven, and, and that, that should be a comfort to us. That should not be a comfort to us. Can I tell you that? We need to bring back this doctrine. I'll explain that passions thing in a minute, but impassibility is a necessary part of God's immutability. What does immutability mean? God can't change. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he do not do it? Or has he spoken and will it not come to pass? God can't change. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And one of my favorite verses, tucked in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Huh. You understand that? It's a good thing for you and me that God can't change or we would be toast. When you and I experience emotions, we are experiencing change. 
right? We're responding to something. We are subjects. We're being influenced. We're being acted upon by external forces. In a sense, we're emotional victims. We're up and we're down. We're all over the place. God is not like that. Nothing that you or I do changes God. But impassibility does not mean emotionless. God is not some cold rock. He's not indifferent toward his creatures. Emotional language is used of God constantly. We know that. We've read some of it already this weekend. Although the word emotions is never used in the Bible of God. The church fathers, men like Augustine and later Jonathan Edwards, made a distinction between passions, which are passive and involuntary, something that happens to you, and what they termed affections, which are active and voluntary. Again, let me try to explain this. A passion is something that that sweeps over us. It overwhelms us. That happens to you and me, but it never happens to God. But an affection is an unchanging disposition. God is full of compassion. God is full of mercy. God is also full of wrath and joy all at the same time, always, perfectly, forever. God is able to have these affections all at once and all perfectly. So I'm not saying that God is without what we would call emotions, but in God they're perfect and unchanging. In other words, we don't make God angry. We don't do things that make God happy or sad. His unchanging anger or pleasure are manifested to us when we act in a certain way, right? When I'm suffering and cry out to God for mercy and compassion, and I receive it, it's not because all of a sudden God becomes compassionate. He's always that way. It's like I said earlier, my misery triggers his mercy, but it's always there. He always is compassionate. He's always angry toward sin, right? He is always holy. He doesn't suddenly become these different emotions, but they are manifested, and we see them in certain situations. God is always perfectly joyful, full of love and mercy. He's also always full of wrath. In human beings, these emotions come and go due to circumstances. With God, listen, they are active, sovereignly directed dispositions rather than passive reactions to external situations. And you're going, this is, I need more coffee than what you told me I needed here. Let me explain the point. It's this, it's so good. God cannot suffer. Because suffering and pain are involuntary, passive reactions to external situations. For God to suffer would have to mean that something is changing God, something is affecting his own happiness. That can't happen any more than God who is spirit can stub his toe or get poked in the eye or tempted by sin or die on a cross. And if the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, had never become a man, God would never have experienced suffering, pain, sorrow, temptation, or death. But in Jesus Christ, he did. 
Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Would you turn there with me? If you want to study this a little more and hear it expressed a little more clearly than I'm doing it, Google Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung's a great guy, great teacher. Kevin DeYoung, impassibility. He's written some good articles. He's even preached some sermons on this. You can study some more on this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him, that's a capital H there, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So that is a Greek word for purpose. The purpose of the incarnation was so that the Son of God could undergo suffering and temptation and death in our place so that we have a perfect mediator. Brothers and sisters, God can't suffer. He did not need to suffer. God was immune to suffering, but in the incarnation, God accepted it. In the incarnation, the impassable God suffered for us. Why? so that we could have a savior, but also so that we could have a friend. Oh. He, again, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, this is why he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. Someone wrote this. Our profound consolation is that, moved by love, God the Son, in perfect cooperation and agreement with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, laid aside his immunity to pain so that he might suffer for us as one of us. Tis mystery all, the immortal God. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I, I, I read that at least in one hymnal they changed that wording because they said God can't die. That thou, my Lord, shouldst die for me. I'll leave it the way it is. I'll leave it the way it is, the way the Wesleys wrote it. What a mystery. What a mystery. What does it mean to you and me? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Let's bow our heads to pray. Before we pray, let me read these words to you from old Charles Spurgeon. The God-man divinely suffered. I know not how else to express the suffering. It was a more than mortal agony. For the divine strengthened the human. Being God and man, he endured more than 10,000 millions of men all put together could have suffered. He endured, indeed, the hells of all for whom he died. The torments or the equivalent for the torments, 
which all of them ought to have suffered, the eternal wrath of God condensed and put into a cup too bitter for mortal tongue to know and then drained to its utmost dregs by the loving lips of Jesus. Beloved, this was love. Herein is love that while we were yet sinners in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Greater love hath no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. This Christ has done and he is therefore demonstrated to be the friend of sinners. Holy Heavenly Father, again, we can't grasp this with our mortal finite minds. But Father, what our minds can't comprehend, our hearts bow and worship. You didn't have to experience this pain. And yet through your son, you took it on. So now we know you mean it when you say you love us, you care for us, you sympathize with our weaknesses, you have compassion on your children. The Lord Jesus proved it. Father, give us a greater love than we've ever had for Jesus. But Father, give us a greater boldness than we've ever known to come to his throne, to come to Jesus, to take him up on his invitation to come to him, to drink from that infinite reservoir of his love and mercy and grace purchased by his own blood, which he shed in our place. We thank you for that love and mercy. Father, if there's anyone here who's never come to Jesus and cried out, to him for mercy, for forgiveness of sins. They've never come to Jesus and asked him to be their Lord and Savior. Pray they would do that before this weekend is over. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you for that promise. Amen.